Welcome everyone to another episode of the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. I'm Nancy Anderson and I'm joined by my co-host and the moderator for this month's roundtable, Linda Descano. Hey, Linda. Hi, Nancy. How are you? I'm doing great. You? All good. Thank you. All good. Glad to hear it. Well, before we get going, tell us a little bit about the conversation that you're having and who's joining you. Well, today we're going to take a deep dive into the state of health inequity and literacy and the role that brands can play to increase healthcare knowledge and really achieve access and equity for all. And joining me for our conversation will be James Wright, who's the global CEO of Red Havas, and Stacey Gandler, Managing Director of Red Havas Health, which is the agency's global offering focused on health and wellness, everything from RX to OTC and uh, everything in between. Perfect. And then later, Ellen Malerney Barnes is going to host this month's Red Questionnaire. This time we welcome Claire Davies, Strategic Director out of Red Havas UK. But before that, I'm gonna pass it over to you and we'll get this roundtable conversation underway. Sounds good, thank you, Nancy. James and Stacy, welcome to Red Sky Feel for Thought podcast. Really delighted to have you here today. So James, PR Week recently held its inaugural US Healthcare and Pharma Summit at which Red Havas sponsored a panel called Tackling the Health Equity Conundrum. Why was this an important topic for the agency to be involved with? Thank you, Linda. Yes. Well, I think health inequity has never been more high profile than it, than it is today. I think, you know, COVID has lifted the lid on a lot of these underlying problems that, that go back, you know, hundreds of years, in fact, but, you know, have clearly surfaced in a, a very sort of obvious way as well in the last uh, couple of years during the pandemic. And it's never been more high profile with the clients that we're working with. Um, Across all of the health and pharma industries that we operate, there's there's a lot to do to be able to address this, and it's quite kind of complex as a as an issue, and it requires you know both business and our healthcare systems and governments to be working together to be able to address them, and it's and it's a subject that's on very many boardroom tables as well, uh, particularly with our with our pharma clients. Um, it's driving a greater diversity in the products and service portfolios of clients, and and it's increasingly becoming the subject in marketing by where we're asked how we can reach these groups better, learn more about these groups and better service these groups. Well, and and Stacey, you and I've spoken many times about the issue of health equity and and some of the gaps that persist. Maybe you could help for our listeners today, just define what we mean by health equity and, you know, how it, is it the same, is it different than health literacy? That's a great question, Linda, and it's something that can be confusing for a lot of people because health equity and health equality often go hand in hand. Health equity is about ensuring equal access to quality healthcare for everybody. So that means ending institutional and discriminatory barriers that can lead to inequities and inequality. So this is when we're talking about systemic racism, sexism, poverty, unequal distribution of resources. Health equity is really about justice. Health equality, on the other hand, means giving everyone the same opportunities for care and services. So as an example, health equality would mean all people who are pregnant can get prenatal ultrasound or all people with a prostate could get a prostate exam. So that's really about the distribution of what's available. And what we find interesting and we're seeing more of in our channel is 
fixing for health equality can resolve some of the health disparities out there, but it doesn't really work without resolving the equity lens. And that's been one of the most major changes that I've been seeing. So you can separately make a little bit of progress by making sure opportunities are available, but not enough progress can be made because so many social factors actually influence people's health and wellness. Well, and it's such a, an important point that you make. And, and I think one of my takeaways from listening to the panel was also we can often associate inequity with like race or gender, but it's so much more and it varies, right? Depending on the country and also the, how the, the health ecosystem is configured and operates in a particular country. It could be urban versus rural. It could be around, you know, socioeconomic lenses. It is so much more complex and, you know, and then, as you said, very persistent and so many factors influence the inequity and the inequality within a system. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, what's very interesting is we're starting to see more and more health companies, and I guess every company should consider themselves health companies. They're looking at health literacy, equity, injustices, because they're so closely tied. And programs are starting to roll out more and more where you used to see things only done at a government level, either national, state, or very local government. Now you're seeing companies get in the game. Absolutely. And I think one of the things coming out of the pandemic, right, the pandemic really put such a bright spotlight on the inequities in the healthcare ecosystem and brought them to the forefront of conversation. And as you said, right, there was more public-private partnership at the global, the national, to the community level on how to address some of these gaps. And I'm wondering if James and Stacey, you know, you could share with us what work, what are the lessons that we should take away from some of these initiatives that were rolled out over the past two years to address the coronavirus pandemic to help solve for some of the, the other chronic healthcare issues that are affecting so many from mental health to cancer and, and sort of everything in between. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I mean, whilst this is a moral issue, you know, that everyone has the essential healthcare that they need, it's become a reputational management issue for our clients. Um, journalists are more interested today than they, they've ever been. They're um, asking, uh, you know, businesses, what are they doing to reach different population groups? And, and the pressure is there to have answers. And when I mean, some of our clients as well who work in other parts of the world, you know, they have to also provide what they're doing and their commitments to address uh, inequity in some of their, you know, procurement contracts when they're looking to secure government contracts in other parts of the world, not so, not, uh, not so much in, in the US, you know, as part of the decision-making process. Or indeed, shareholders are asking clients what they're doing. And now you've also got employees, which have become a much louder voice during the pandemic doing the same. So you have to ask yourself, what's our role? And, and there are a number. I mean, clearly there's, there's raising awareness and education on health inequity. There's helping clients better interact and learn from different population groups. I mean, all too often, Black patients and other minorities are spoken to rather than spoken with. And, you know, we need to address that and, because the result is less effective interactions, less empathy and, and acknowledgement of concerns. We need to build the messaging and proof points around the roles of our clients in addressing health inequity and importantly, where their gaps are that they need to focus on. Then, of course, promoting the products and services that are being provided and, and launched to these groups. 
And there's also a need to, to translate this scientific information in a usable format and language that can be easily understood and used by different audiences through appropriate channels. And that was one of the, I guess, pieces that came out of the pandemic was, you know, actually, how do you translate what COVID is and the potential impact it can have on your life and on your family's lives? Um, and not just in terms of just your sort of like physical health, but as you touched on, Linda, your your mental health. And so all of this has become you know, very much kind of at the front and center. And the fact that, you know, we were talking about this uh, at different conferences, that it's coming up so regularly in media articles and news programming speaks to the fact that, you know, this has become, you know, an issue that is that is not going to go anywhere anytime soon. Stacey, anything to build on? Yeah, sure. You you could not have been more right, James, in talking about the new lens that everybody needs to look through. You know, there were two big things that I saw come out of communications around pandemic issues that I personally hope we see translate across other disease states um, that we as PR people need to start thinking of. And the first clearly is using a health equity lens when thinking about the language we're using, the preferred terms of different diverse groups, the distribution channels. In the past, I've heard a lot of lip service to go where your target audience is. But really at the end of the day, to understand the community in which people live and how they receive information and process it is incredibly important these days. Number two is thinking about cultural context. I found it fascinating to read and listen to and learn more about different ingrained perceptions culturally in different groups of how they feel about healthcare providers and health institutions. You know, you hear about this as you're in the business and working with health companies, but to truly dig deep and have honest conversations with your clients and really think authentically about the people that you serve, the people that you ultimately want to help with your brands and services, what they need can be a really eye-opening and interesting conversation. You know, other pieces around cultural context are how do you use person-first language? How do you think about stigmatized behaviors? You know, something we saw coming up during the pandemic a lot, which has application across many different disease areas, is shame around diagnoses people feeling that they should be blamed for having a certain condition. So this equity lens and this cultural contextual lens are the two pieces that I really hope to see translate and come across in PR campaigns moving forward. And one of the big questions that came up, you know, when the original first wave of vaccinations came through in regards to COVID was, you know, how was the clinical trials carried out? And, and clinical trials comes up a lot in, in the health equity debate because, you know, there is concern around the broadness of the population group that the clinical trials are, are performed with. Are we representing Black and ethnic groups, Latino groups, other types of groups to be able to ensure that, you know, we are representing them in these clinical trials? And Pfizer last year published its clinical trials diversity report, which was uh, essentially providing great transparency into, you know, the percentages of the participants and their backgrounds to be able to then start to address some of those problems in the clinical trials, because that is a big area that needs to, to be focused on. And all of the major pharma companies have, have stepped up in this regard. There's still a lot more to be done. 
But it was a big question that came through because, you know, COVID was still hitting different population groups harder than others. And why was that? And what was the role in the vaccination? Is it going to be more effective for different types of population groups versus others? And so these kind of questions, because it was front and centre of every single news report all the time, you know, a lot of general population was exposed to a lot more information about, you know, healthcare companies and how they go to market with vaccines and how they produce vaccines and how they sort of do all the research and analysis to bring them to society. So this now, I guess, is also an area that is being focused on in a big way. Stacey and James, you, you touched on some of the initiatives that really focus on empowering patients and the, the importance of doing that to help close the health equity gap. Uh, but what about, you know, the, the education or re-education of providers and helping them sort of be more effective partners in how they engage with patients. So to James's point, patients are not being talked at, but being talked with. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. You know, I think we would all agree that our healthcare providers have had an immense amount of pressure on them that's been put on during the pandemic. And, you know, being able to provide them support to you know, not only work with them to address health literacy challenges of their patients, but to understand their own backgrounds, um, their own unconscious bias, so they can better connect with their patients. Because ultimately, they got in this business to support people and help them be healthy and well and live their best lives. So, you know, finding ways to be able to share information and education is definitely an interesting nut to crack in that arena. It's very interesting and exhilarating and exciting to see more people coming from diverse populations going into medicine or going into healthcare. You know, there's lots of research that shows that often people from underserved populations or under-resourced populations feel more comfortable working with a provider who comes from their community or their background and can instinctively understand some of their challenges and thought processes and cultural norms and ideas. So how more people can be encouraged from those communities to join the healthcare field is something that I'm really interested in seeing evolve. So uh, you, we mentioned, James, you mentioned Pfizer and uh, their work of bringing transparency around their approach to clinical trials. Are there other companies that are getting it right in that they're beginning to see some traction in the equity initiatives that they've launched? Yeah, I mean, we've seen almost all of the pharma, major pharma step, stepping up uh, in the past couple of years. You know, we've seen Novartis, Sanofi, GSK and Pfizer all launch programs, new services, new research projects. Um, Bristol Myers Squibb is working to enhance uh, health equity and expand its reach of medicines, particularly for medically underserved and, and increasingly diverse patient populations. I mean, they're big in the HIV and AIDS space, so focused on ensuring a greater opportunity for all population groups to get essential care in that area. But, you know, mentioned obviously Pfizer, they've launched their clinical trials diversity report, but they've also established other partnerships to address health equity. Moderna's done something similar as well. Uh, as has Johnson & Johnson, I think they've made plans to increase the number of black managers in their company by 50% within five years as part of a $100 million initiative to tackle racial inequity. And the view there being that, you know, we can only address 
health inequity if we've got a diverse leadership and management group that better reflect the populations that we're trying to serve, which you know is, of course, super important too. I think Novartis has announced a commitment of about $34 million over the next 10 years to address the root causes of, of disparities in health and education. So there's a lot happening. But as I said at the top of this podcast, you know, they can't just do it in isolation. They need to do that in partnership with government. So, you know, know, so our healthcare systems and providers are also working, you know, hand in glove with the big pharma companies to address this collectively. Otherwise, everyone's doing a little bit here and there, and we're we're just essentially kind of tinkering around. We need to get to grips with this in, in a much bigger way, I think, particularly from a government perspective. And that's where the expectation is that that government steps up more than it is right now. Well, as we bring this conversation to a close, Stacey, you mentioned this earlier, just about every story today has to be communicated through a public health lens and every company really, to some form or fashion, is in the the business of healthcare, whether it's because of the services they provide to their customers or ensuring the health and well-being of their employees. So as, as we close out this conversation, perhaps each of you can touch on what is maybe the one takeaway, one piece of advice you would give to the brand marketers and communicators listening in about how to tackle issues of access and equity in their communications going forward. Um, Stacy, could we start with you? Yeah, of course. You know, where we're starting at Red Havas is to listen more and ensure co-creation at the start of every process, you know, making sure that the communities that we're targeting with some of the campaigns we're working on are built collaboratively is incredibly important to its success and understanding that it's going to not only be accepted, not only be able to get us coverage and the things that, you know, we're looking for as communicators, but really be able to authentically connect with people and be able to meaningfully impact change for people and how they're living their lives. From my perspective, I think we've got to turn this recognition into results now. So there's a recognition from the media, from governments, from Big Pharma, that we really need to focus on addressing health and equity. And that recognition now really needs to turn into results. And so all of these programs that have been launched, we really now need to Focus on the success of them, uh, or the, or indeed, actually, if they're they're not successful, learning from that. So, you know, being very transparent and authentic around how this is being approached by our clients, because that's where that trust is built. And then, once we start to gain results, then I think you know they're only going to invest more if it's working, right? So, that's that's going to be our focus: helping them communicate the journey that they're on in terms of addressing health equity and the successes that that are happening, and you know, how do we double down on those successes to continue to build this momentum and actually affect change. Thank you both for joining. And we will include in our show notes, a link to the information about this session. Welcome to the Red Sky Questionnaire segment of the podcast. I'm Ellen Mallory Barnes, VP of Content here in the US. And this month we're chatting with Claire Davies, Strategy Director in the UK. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Good to be here. It's okay. I'm just going to go ahead and get right into the first question. Perfect. Claire, how would you describe your job to a child? That's a really interesting question. I have been asked before how I would describe my job to my parents, but never to a child. Um, And I I think I describe it as like working in a shop, but one that sells ideas rather than things. 
And I, lo- I like the idea that that might conjure up images of a shop with sort of rows of jars with sort of different sparks in it, which I kind of quite like as an image and thought, you know, was sort of the sort of thing a child might think on the back of that explanation. But then I thought, actually, kids are so smart and savvy and switched on at such an early age these days that they'd probably, rather than imagine a magical shop, they'd probably kind of ask me, you know, what e-commerce platform I'm on and how I use TikTok to generate revenue and what crypto I accept. So I think that was just my fantasy of like what a kid might imagine when I explain that rather than the reality, um, the the day-to-day reality. I love that. So what are the sparks in the jars? All sorts of things, I guess, you know, just uh, just ideas waiting to be uh, plucked and formed. But yeah, I still hadn't got any further than that. I need to clearly need to embrace my kind of inner child to uh, to imagine that. Well, tell us what is your favorite place you've ever traveled to and why? Well, a few years ago, I was so lucky to kind of take some time out from work to travel. And I decided to go to Colombia having never been to kind of South America previously. And I just absolutely loved it. And as cliched as it sounds, I think it was, I mean, yes, it, it obviously has amazing landscape in terms of combination of rainforest and Caribbean coast and kind of mega urban centers. But I think what I loved about it the most was this kind of riot of, of sort of music and color that's kind of such a big part of life there. And it feels just so culturally different in that sense um, to the UK. And I think weirdly, I I also have this kind of it has this soft spot in my heart because it was really the first place I just really realized just how British I was abroad. And it was a really, really actually awkward kind of a realization where I was at this fantastic club and people were dancing, you know, one to one. And they were kind of just totally at ease with themselves and each other and the music. And it was this incredible kind of experience. And then this very brave Colombian um, in my group basically asked me if I wanted to learn the dance. And obviously just being terribly British, I was just struck with this sense of terror that I would have to get up and basically learn the dance. Um, (laughs) And then it was just like cue some very really awkward, cringy dance floor scenes that were about as far away from sort of Shakira style moves as you could possibly imagine. And, you know, and weirdly, I sort of, uh, you know, that's kind of fond memory, despite the fact it was just deeply awkward. And and it just made me realise, made me realise how British I was. But despite that, I still loved Colombia. I just thought it was brilliant. I loved it. It was just a great, yeah, just just a fantastic, just a fantastic place. But yeah, made me realise just how I have to accept the uh, the cultural baggage, you know, that I come with, which is to be deeply awkward um, on the dance floor, apparently. (laughs) I didn't realize that folks from the UK were deeply awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Didn't you? (laughs) Now I love you even more. (laughs) Um, Well, do you have a favorite blog or podcast that you could share with us? Yeah, this is a really hard question, I think, because there's so many great podcasts. I love film. And I think one of the best podcasts I've listened to is a UK produced one called The Secret History of Hollywood. I have a little bit of love for the golden age of Hollywood. And so it was a, yeah, it was a, a match made in heaven for me, this. But uh, just in terms of the storytelling, it is absolutely incredible. I'd say it's the equivalent of a long read um, article, but in audio format. Some of the episodes are insanely long, um, but don't let that put you off because it's unbelievably well researched. It's hugely intricate in its detail, but at the same time manages to keep you totally gripped into the story. And it's it, I kind of think of it as oddly like a good conversation. It sort of meanders down various subplots. And then sort of brings you back to the main story. So 
for me cool. it's kind of yeah it's, it's if you're interested I mean I would say only if you're interested in sort of golden era Hollywood is it probably one for you because it is completely about that but it's also helped by the fact that this ho- the host actually of it has this sort of very deep mesmeric voice as well Ooh. and it's kind of like the audio storytelling equivalent of like velvet it's just amazing so it's, it's fascinating but it's also so richly detailed it's just a, a, an absolutely beautiful example of brilliant storytelling and you get swept up in it and it's all factual stories it's great it's like you know really behind the scenes of golden golden era hollywood it i couldn't recommend it enough i'm sold Claire, is there a headline grabbing your attention this month? If we were going to read up on anything, what should it be? Okay, this is maybe slightly left field, but I am a bit obsessed with stories about fungi at the moment, which mm. I appreciate is like really weird. <laughs> maybe really no, odd. fungi is trending. Uh, it is, it is, isn't it? Um, and I would just encourage everybody to channel their inner mycologist and know about mushrooms. But um, yeah, I think ever since I heard, I've been slightly obsessed with this ever since I heard about the existence of the wood wide web, as people called it, which I loved. And the most recent story I saw in it was that actually mushrooms can communicate with each other using up to 50 in inverted commas kind of words. And there's this theory that kind of electrical signals, um, they sort of use electrical signals to communicate with each other. And those signals are apparently very similar to the structure of human speech. So there's patterns in them that are very similar to the structure of human speech. And I think for me, that's obviously just deeply fascinating anyway. But I think it kind of symbolizes a, a few things. So a couple of interesting things, I think, especially given my job, but I think firstly, on a surface level, it talks to kind of the endless ways in which the natural world is full of surprises that we're still yet to discover. I kind of think we go through life thinking we've kind of discovered all the fun stuff on Earth and that actually the party is kind of artificial intelligence or space. Um, And so I love that it kind of there's just things that are still just mysteries we're discovering kind of, you know, literally under our feet. And then I think sort of secondly, symbolically, it's probably also speaks to me as a strategist where, you know, I think. We can often focus on the really big stories or trends that are sort of macro and shaping the world. And obviously, we need to know about those things. But I think also, I think we overlook sometimes the small things that are shaping life around us. Um, So the micro networks that are emerging or kind of the little shifts that are impacting on people's thoughts and behaviours. And I think it's a great, a great kind of analogy for that as well. So, yeah, for me, that's kind of something that I'm just really into at the moment. I just think everybody kind of could could and should get interested in. That's a good one. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) We will end on this question, which is what is your guilty pleasure? Oh, I've got actually I've got a short answer to this, which is I don't have any guilty pleasures. And I'm just going to say let, let me be clear, that is not because I'm some sort of paragon of virtue and highbrow pursuits. It's it's because I'm I'm trying to train myself out of thinking of things as guilty pleasures. Mm. And I don't think we should feel guilty about enjoying the things that we like or, you know, just because other people might not think it's a good use of our time. Um, and I recently, I actually recently read a book called 4,000 Weeks about our relationship with time. And it was such a breath of fresh air because it was just recognizing this constant pressure we put on ourselves to be kind of constructive and productive and efficient at all times. And actually um, it made the argument very convincingly that if we kind of accepted the limitations of time and living life with a mindset that doing something for the sheer joy of it is, you know, the best use of time we have, 
I thought that was really impactful kind of argument and something we could probably all do with reminding ourselves more of day to day. So as a result, I am trying to ban the phrase from my life, guilty pleasures, and instead just having pleasures and enjoying them and not feeling guilty about them. So um, yeah, that's my view on guilty pleasures. That's a beautiful way to think about it. Claire, thank you so much for joining us this month. You've been wonderful to talk to. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. You can subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And don't forget to rate and review today's show to let us know how we're doing. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications, insights, and trends from the team at Red Havas.